What's up, guys? Welcome back to another live episode of the Scuttlebutt Show. I am uh, back after a week of no new episodes because I was out in Kyoto, Japan, where we were traveling. Uh, it was briefly, briefly available for us to go on a little vacation, and we went, and the day we got back, it got on restriction list. So I'm really glad we got to go check that out. I'd like to say, What's up to you guys? I hope that you haven't been uh, missed me too much. We got a couple video clips out while I was gone, but uh, it is really, really good to be back. And I'm super excited to be back here with you guys. I hope you're hearing me. I hope you're seeing me good. I hope I'm not too rusty on the uh, live stream here. I see Joe in the chat and I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We have some uh, really cool news to catch up on. I didn't know what to do uh, because we had, there were so many stories that I want to cover while I was gone. And I was like, well, what do I do? Do I go back and catch up with all the old stories or do I start doing the current, you know, new stuff? And I think what I'm going to do is uh, go with the new stuff. I think I'll go with the new stuff. So we have some really cool stories. Let me get right off to a, a kind of fun story here. Um, a kind of fun story. And I got a little thumbnail pulled up here. I saw this uh, just this morning popped up in my one of my alerts for uh, a, a story about a Marine. And I, I was like, I got to do this one because not only is this a cool story, but when I saw the, the article and I saw the picture, I was like, yeah, we're doing that one. We are doing that one. So here we got uh, this 81-year-old ex, well, not ex, well, you know, I, I never know what to say with the Marines. I never know what to say. You're not an ex-Marine, you're a Marine, but 81-year-old Marine Corps veteran fights off three burglars using an ancient Irish walking stick. And this article is from the Irish Post, which I didn't know was a thing until, until this article. So it, it reads, an Irish-American U.S. Marine veteran has made headlines after fending off a trio of burglars with a little help from an heirloom from his ancestral homeland. So... Dan Donovan. I wish I could do like an Irish accent. Like, well, how would that sound? A Danny Donovan, from 81 years old, from Chicago, found himself facing an elderly person's worst nightmare when his wife Barbara discovered thieves upstairs in their house. So I read this article. First of all, I don't care what age you are. Uh, I don't care what age you are. This is everyone's worst nightmare. When I was young, I came home to a robbery in progress in my house, and it was very scary. Uh, luckily, they ran away not wanting to get arrested. And I called the police. I was like 13 years old. So I saw this article. I feel for this guy. Now the thieves who prey on elderly people are extra pieces of crap. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm trying to reserve my language for YouTube purposes. Um, I usually let them rip, but I'm trying to do better with my language. So the, the thieves that go out and they, and they, have a lot of techniques. They go knock on doors. And when an elderly couple or family or person answers the door, they run their scam. There are a lot of cold calling where they call elderly people and they threaten them with bills and tax, uh, like, like, uh, that they're from the government collecting taxes, or I've even heard in San Diego calling thieves, calling elderly people and saying that they've abducted their grandchildren. If they don't wire them money, they're going to kill their grandchildren. And they have actors in the background playing kids and horrible, I wish nothing but the worst for these people. If you target and, you know, and take advantage of elderly people, I just wish you nothing but the worst because when elderly people were younger, they might've been badasses and they might still be badasses like this Marine right here. Danny, Danny Donovan. I, I'm not even going to try to do it. I can't do it. It's embarrassing when I try to do accents. So Danny Donovan was a Marine and luckily after uh, being alerted to what was going on, he was able to handle business, but here's how it went down. So he, uh, he was at home and the, the guys knocked on his door claiming to be a utility worker and that they were in the neighborhood needing to check some stuff out because there had been some fires. And Danny, being the guy he is, at first volunteered to help this guy out. So he's outside helping this guy out when his wife heard noises upstairs and walked in and discovered that they were burglarizing their house. So she yells, Danny, somebody's in our bedroom. Danny heads upstairs. These guys are ransacking the bedroom and Donovan grabs. And this is where I thought, this is where I really like this story. D D Danny G Donovan grabs an old school shillelagh. 
Have you ever heard of like somebody's going to beat you with a shillelagh? Like I've heard this, but I didn't know this was like a real thing that happens. So apparently this guy whoops up on these dudes with a shillelagh, which is amazing. Shillelagh, which is spelled S-H-I-L-L-E-L-A-G-H in case you're wondering. So it was just epic. So it says here in a twist of fate, the stick which has no fixed place in their home, just happened to be at the hand at exactly the perfect moment. And he was, uh, he, Danny described it as a persuasive weapon. So he picks up the shillelagh, and that turned out to be the equalizer, he says, because he managed to chase him out of the house. Chases him out, clunks one dude in the head, bashes the car of the, uh, as they're getting away. And when interviewed, he said, they're luck- the thieves are lucky because they escaped with nothing more than a headache, and he wants to tell them to pursue another occupation. So I wanted to take this opportunity to give a big shout out to Danny Donovan for being a just a badass Marine who is 81 years old and still comes in and whoops up on some thieves, defends his home, defends his wife and uh, his property, which I think is amazing. So shout out to Danny Donovan with the Irish Post there and uh, good for him. So hey. Thanks for watching that one, guys. That's the first story of today. I want to say what's up to Colton checking in. And Joe had had your boy. Congratulations on that. That's amazing. So uh, happy for you out there. I, uh, uh, My wife and I don't have any kids, but uh, if that day comes, I'm sure it'll be quite exciting for us. Um, it does make it easier to travel. We have a little dog. So we have a little dog. And uh, out here in Okinawa, we got to put our dog in a kennel. Um, like I, I called it doggy jail. I said, you better behave or you're going to doggy jail. And, uh, she, we, she went to doggy jail anyway, behaved or not, because we had to go on that little vacation. So we took her up there and it was, it was okay. It was okay. If there's any Okinawa folks listening, that was carrying kennels on a uh, Kadena air force base out here in Okinawa. I mean, she's safe. She's safe and sound. She's back here with us. If you guys want to see my dog on the show, let me know, and on one of these episodes, I'll bring her on, and uh, maybe I'll tell you the story of how our dog is now living in Japan, learning a little bit of Japanese, but uh, I'm pretty sure she speaks Spanish because I think she was rescued from Mexico. So she's working on her third language, which is no joke. Um, it's, been a, it's been a crazy week. I know I told you guys last week about the uh, K2 base in Uzbekistan. I don't know if you guys remember that. We did a story, and it's on. It's a, the clips on YouTube. The K two base in Uzbekistan, where it was an, a base that got stood up shortly after the invasion of Afghanistan post nine eleven, and hundreds of people who served there are now battling cancer and diseases that they believe are associated with the toxic environment that was that base. And I told you that there was going to be a, a committee hearing on that on November eighteenth, and there was, and it was a, uh, you know. Typical C-SPAN politics, you know, not very dynamic, but it's important. And it's not only about K2, but it's about the the whole issue with the VA covering exposure injuries. And I watched a bit of it and I thought, you know what? People need people need to see this. So I think what I'm going to do, um, if you're if you guys if you guys want to tune in for this is I'm going to watch the whole thing live. I'm going to stream it. And I'll do that with you guys, and uh, you can watch with me and tell me what you think about VA exposure injuries. It's long, and then I'll do a highlight reel, and I'll publish the highlight reel. So I'll probably do that tomorrow, uh, pending um, other interesting stories that come out. So if there's other crazy stories, uh, I'll do those. But if, if there's a day this week, maybe, where there's nothing too insane going on, no crazy stories then I think what I'll do is I'll do that uh, that House Committee on Reform hearing on the K-2 base because that's an important one to me. Uh, it deals with veteran health due to service-connected injuries, and as of right now, the VA is still denying it's related, which to me is like totally bananas. So we'll, we'll try to get some info on that for you guys and, and see what's up with it. But we do have a bunch of other uh, stories today. There's one, I mean, I hate that I have to report this, um, I do, but it is important that we cover all the all the hot stories, and it's uh, we have what appears to be another case of COVID nineteen breaking out on a warship, and this time it's not just any warship; it's the USS Michael Murphy, named after Navy SEAL Michael Murphy, uh, 
who was killed in Afghanistan, Medal of Honor winner, and you might have seen the movie The Lone Survivor, which is about that. And this ship, which is a destroyer, uh, guided missile destroyer, is also made out of metal from the Twin Towers um, that was recovered post 9-11. Now, the article here, which is from uh, KVIA ABC7, says there's been a major coronavirus outbreak aboard U.S. Navy guided missile destroyer to USS Michael Murphy, which has spread to nearly a quarter of the ship's 300-strong crew, which puts that number at about 75. My math's not wrong. And the ship has been in port in Hawaii, and there's been limited operational impact due to the outbreak. Uh, I guess what that means is limited day-to-day operations of the ship being in port, because I don't think... I don't think that they would send them on a training exercise or an underway time with COVID if they didn't have to, if it was non-deployment, non-national you know, national defense related. Now, one official said the majority of the sailors who have contracted the virus experience no symptoms, and many are expected to return to the ship in the coming days. So it sounds like they've quarantined people. But you guys watched the video last week, Life on a Navy Destroyer, which the clip's up on YouTube. Uh how is it possible that this would not spread to every single person on the ship? I mean, it's kind of like chicken pox at this point where if one person on this ship gets COVID, they might as well just have everybody sit on the ship and get COVID uh, because there's just like no way in that kind of confined small space with a small crew and small living quarters and shared bathrooms and shared galley and closed in spaces and that kind of stale ship air that uh, people are not going to get this no matter how much cleaning stations you do. So, uh, let's see. People, per, people who have tested positive for COVID-19 have been placed in isolation out of an abundance of caution. All close contacts and non-essential crew members are undergoing a two-week self-isolation period in accordance with the Center for the CDC, basically. Um, have you guys ever been on a ship when somebody's been quarantined? We had... Okay, so I've never had chicken pox, and I was on a ship, a very small ship once. I deployed on a small ship, uh, MSC ship, military, or, or yeah, military sea lift command ship which is manned by merchant marines, civilian sailors, basically. And somebody got chicken pox, and they had to quarantine because I had never had chicken pox. And uh, if I had gotten that, I guess as an adult, it can be pretty serious. So the crew members on the on board the USS Michael Murphy with COVID, uh, it says the news of the outbreak of the Navy warship comes the day after the U.S. Coast Guard announced that one of its ships, the Cutter Stratton, was forced to return to port after 11 of its crew members tested positive. So they're participating in counter-narcotics patrols in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, these affected crew members had mild symptoms. The Navy has made progress in preventing outbreaks on ships, which is kind of shocking that there hasn't been more, to be honest. Like, how has every ship not had a COVID outbreak? That's, like, totally crazy to me. Um, but that's good. Now, the Theodore Roosevelt, which it, which it uh, cites here, was the one that had to pull into Guam and get its sailors treated. And that's an aircraft carrier that was deployed. Um, and that was huge news for the Navy, where the secretary of the Navy got fired. Uh, the captain of the ship got fired. It would turn into this massive, massive, basically bad publicity for the Navy, which I know they're trying to avoid completely. Now, it says, according to the Department of Defense here, the military reported a record high number of coronavirus cases on this past Tuesday, 1,300 new ones. There are currently about 25,000 active COVID cases in the ranks and another 45,000 have recovered. And there's been a couple fatalities. Um, And look, let me shut this down real quick. Look, COVID-19, it's a pretty polarizing subject, right? Uh, People are freaking out over wearing masks. People are freaking out over how deadly it is. But let me tell you something. Uh, while I'm not scared of COVID-19 and it, you know, destroying the world or anything like that, there are serious complications for people who've had it, who are otherwise healthy, who now have serious medical conditions going forward. So there's a reason to be concerned uh, about the disease, including the long-term effects of people who survive. So there's people who are going to survive COVID-19, the vast overwhelming majority of people are going to survive COVID-19, but then have lasting injuries, especially to their pulmonary system. So I think this is stuff that we just don't understand yet. I think that's it, frankly. Like, that's the answer is we don't know yet how bad it is. There's there's no way to know. It'll be years before people really understand what this disease does to people. So I think that's the approach that I take to it is we just don't know, and it's too soon to say. So you're not going to hear me say, 
oh, it's nothing to worry about. Oh, it's the end of the world. Nothing like that because honestly, nobody knows. That's the truth. Nobody knows. We're learning together and we're going to continue to learn together. And hopefully uh, it will be not too long until there's a vaccine and we can get back some kind of semblance of normal life. So that's it for that. It's tough to see uh, the USS Michael Murphy go out like that with some COVID. So that's a cool ship. I'm sure it's got a great crew, a very patriotic crew. I'm sure there's a very patriotic crew on the uh, Michael Murphy there because they represent the name of one of the Navy's most popular figures, one of the most popular namesakes of a ship because it is, of course, uh, from modern war, modern war fighting, the war on terror. So it's not like it's named after somebody from the Civil War or the American Revolution or World War II. This is somebody that people who are still active duty knew, uh, served with, served in that people were on active duty and still serving when that happened in 2005. So it is a very high profile deal. Um, there's some other cool stories. There's a, well, there's a bunch, but there's some other low key stories that I want to show you guys that I thought were kind of neat uh, that I didn't make any thumbnails for. So this will be podcast only content. Now, as you guys who are watching the live stream know, this uh, episode is going to go out on the podcast the full uncut episode. And if you're listening on the podcast and you want to see kind of what we're talking about, make sure you go over to YouTube and check out the clips. Cause if you miss them here on the live show, uh, you can see some of the clips on the YouTube channel and, uh, and vice versa. So if you if you watch it on the podcast, you can go, if you listen to it on the podcast you can go watch it on YouTube. If you watch it on YouTube, you can go listen to it on the podcast. Um, so this picture here that you're seeing is of, uh, U.S. Special Operations Command members, Navy members, deploying what you see on the bottom third of the screen here is an under, unmanned underwater vehicle. So the Navy has these unmanned underwater vehicles called the, let's see, I had the name down here, the Ivers. So what they do is they deploy these things into the water and they basically navigate a predetermined path and they go, they can take pictures, they can detect waves, they can go you know, scout some reconnaissance of like depth and uh, terrain underwater, which is great for um, over the beach type operations, like maritime invasion type operations. So if you see this picture here, these guys are kind of lowering this thing into the water. They're holding it by hand. It looks like it's probably about, I don't know, 12 inches in, in circumference here. And uh, maybe maybe 12 to 14 inches in circumference. It's got a little propeller. It's got fins. It's guided. So I'm sure a propeller can pitch or something turns it. Um and then they can go kind of explore underwater, which I think is pretty cool. And it did say that, uh, so one thing that I thought was kind of funny in this article is you have all these guys' faces blurred, uh, faces blurred in the boat here. But then I, as I scrolled down and I saw some more, there was these uh, EOD guys in this photo here. Uh, faces did not get blurred. So EOD doesn't get the respect. E EOD doesn't get the face blur respect. They're not, in, not important enough, I guess. So sorry, EOD guys. Uh, you don't get the deal. And it does, uh, it does go on to say that the Navy participated in uh, a ship recovery. Let's see, where is that? Uh, let me see if I can find the name of the ship. Participated in a, in a ship recovery where they found it. They, f they found a uh, lost ship, which is pretty cool. I bet that was pretty fun. Um, so these Ivers are these underwater unmanned vehicles that can go do all these different tasks and are being used by the Navy Special Operations Command, which I think was pretty, I thought that was pretty neat. I, I, I guess I was curious, have you guys heard of uh, unmanned underwater vehicles? And if so, what did you, uh, what do you think of those? Are they pretty cool in your opinion? Are they kind of lame and nerdy? Um, but so, so, okay, so 2017, unmanned undersea vehicle squadron one. So they have their own command, UUV-RON, which I'm guess I'm, I'm assuming they say UUV-RON because... Usually on an acronym like this one, they would say ROM, like squadron. So UUV Squadron 1, the service's first dedicated underwater drone unit, sent three Ivers as well as a larger Bluefin 12D UUV, that's a funny name, to join the search for the lost Argentinian Navy submarine ARA San Juan and the wreckage of that boat, which suffered a fire five days fire days before it sank and imploded, was finally found in November 2018. So they found it. Um, uh, eventually with help from the Navy and the unmanned underwater vehicle, which is pretty cool. Uh, and I like that. So good for those guys. Uh, kind of a fun deal and sorry to the EOD guys who did not get the respect to get the faces blurred. Um, 
I, uh, you know, I have a background in aviation. Um, my first job in the Navy was working on the flight deck, putting fuel into jets. Then I was a helicopter mechanic, maintenance technician. I worked on the computer systems, actually. Uh, I don't want to claim to be some kind of super mechanic. I'm certainly not. Uh, but the the military aviation force is extremely powerful. Um, aircraft alone could probably level the entire world, I bet, with the fleet of military aircraft and their armaments could probably level the entire world. Now, I saw this headline a few times this past week while I was traveling. Um, a few different sources that popped up and said there was a new report out saying the U.S. military's aircraft are nowhere near as ready as they should be. Here's how bad the situation is. Let me pull up Safari here. So the bullet points here, U.S. and, and this is from Business Insider, U.S. military aircraft, including several fighter jet types, have been falling short of their readiness targets for years, the Government Accountability Office said. The GAO evaluated Government Accountability Office, evaluated 46 aircraft types and found that between 2011 and 2019, 24 aircraft never once achieved the required mission-capable rate. The downward trend in aircraft readiness comes as the DOD pumps tens of billions of dollars a year into sustaining the aircraft evaluated. So the article goes on to say a lot of... Uh, Military aircraft are not meeting their readiness goals. What does that mean, first off? What are the readiness goals? I guess uh, you look at... So there's these, like, bean counters out there that track, uh, like, how many flights type model series aircraft are doing, how many flight squadrons are doing worldwide, uh, how many aircraft are currently up, like, ready to go, how many are down, not ready to go. And there's also something called partial mission capable, which is if an aircraft can do 20 capabilities, but currently they can still fly, but they can only do 16 of those 20 capabilities, they are partially mission capable. So I'm not sure how these are uh, totally um, sorted out here, here as far as meeting readiness goes, uh, because I'm sure that the people who track that readiness are not you know, on the deck helping out with the uh, mission here. Though, one thing I will say is it seems like we're getting the mission done downrange, and that's what matters the most, right? So the jets putting warheads on foreheads, as they say, are getting the job done. So over the better part of the last decade, only three of 46 aircraft types in the U.S. arsenal regularly met the service-established mission-capable goals, and only one consistently met the readiness goal. And that one, you guys are gonna, you guys are gonna laugh. Some of you are gonna be like, obviously. Uh, others are gonna be like, damn it, you know, jealous of the old Air Force there because it's the Huey, the old reliable Huey, very simple helicopter, completing very important missions of transporting personnel and supplies. It, uh, it is the most consistently successful capable and ready aircraft that the military has. So, and there's a chart down. I can't wait to get to this chart. I can't wait. So from fiscal year 2011 to 2019, 24 military aircraft types to include the critical fighter aircraft like the F-22 and the Navy's F-18 never once achieved the required mission capable rates. Now, again, I don't want to, if you're watching on YouTube, I don't want to spoil with the chart. Again, I should say, just because they didn't meet their required mission-capable rates does not mean that they're not accomplishing their mission. They are. Uh, we are accomplishing the mission, as far as I know. It's certainly, I have not heard or seen anything to make me think otherwise. But mission-capable, as the article says, mission-capable rates are an important readiness metric that is defined as the percentage of total time an aircraft can fly and execute at least one mission. The total percentage of total time an aircraft can fly and execute at least one mission. So then there's this chart and in green here is the uh, P3, the Navy P3 and the Air Force, the Huey. Okay. And green means that in the last nine years, they've been mission capable or ready seven to nine of those years. In yellow, four to six years out of the last nine years is the F-15 the uh, E6B, the E, nope, the, oh, that's it. 
<laughs> That's it. So the F-15 and the E-6B are yellow. And every other aircraft is in red. So let me go through some of these aircraft. Notably, the Hercules, the Navy KC-130, and the Super Hercules, the B-1, the C-2 Greyhound, the Navy, C-130, um, the C-17, the C-130 Super Hercules by the Air Force, the Navy's E-2C, the E-2D, uh, the F-18 Foxtrot model, Echo and Foxtrot models, the AV-8B Harrier, the F-A-18 Delta, the, oh my gosh, the F-16, the F-22, the Apache, the Chinook, the Blackhawk, the Seahawk, which is the Navy's Blackhawk, the Viper, the Stallion, the Osprey, the, the Venom, and the Osprey again by the Air Force. So the Air Force's Osprey. We're mission capable zero of the last nine years. Zero of the last nine years. But I've flown in some of those aircraft in the last nine years. They're not they're not like out of business. <laughs> it's uh it's a little misleading. Like the jobs again, like I, I gotta stress the jobs getting done. But the standard that the military has set for how often these aircraft should be fully capable is down. And what does that mean? Like how are aircraft not mission capable? Well, they're probably down for maintenance. They're probably down for maintenance, I would assume. So usually there's a person out there who's inspecting these aircraft, reporting problems, and they're downing them for maintenance. And that's probably what's causing most of these problems. So average mission capable rates for the selected Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps aircraft have fallen since fiscal year 2011. Of the 46 aircraft that the GAO evaluated, 19 were more than 15 percentage points below their target readiness goals. And that group were 11 that were at least 25 percentage points off mark. And then there's something in between. Uh, although the U.S. military spends tens of billions of dollars a year on maintenance and sustainment, issues like unexpected repair demands, maintenance backlogs, parts shortages, and diminishing manufacturing base are making it tougher for jets like the F-22 and the F-18 Echo and Foxtrot to hit their goals. I don't know about the uh, specific types of aircraft and their supply chains and how often these parts are getting made and stuff like that. Um, but I do remember there were periods of time where there was like no uh, radars in, in the supply system inventory. There were no, you know, engines or whatever because maybe so many broke at one time and the Navy, you know, ships them out to certain high-priority groups first. Um but yeah, that stuff happens. You know, there's maintenance shortages. There's things get backlogged. Things tend to happen like a lot all at once. So it never seems like there's a steady demand of things going like, you know, things are normally 80% good. It's like things are normally 100% good and then 0%. And there's not a lot of in between. Uh, but, you know, they wrote that these... Uh, they're writing in here that the military wants an 80% mission-capable rate and that this was necessary to ensure that U.S. aviation assets prove dominant over the battlefields both today and tomorrow. Now, it's just the United States air is dominant, totally dominant. Um, there's, no, there's no shortage of domination going on as far as air power goes. So I think that's important to, uh, to note that um, there's, no, there's no problem there. Uh, as far as providing support to the guys on the ground. If anything, the problem for people on the ground getting air support is not the aircraft not working. It's the uh, command structure not working, like not being able to get their, get the aircraft in the right place at the right time. No fault of the aircraft is usually what happens. Or whoever's tasking the air for that area, not doing a good job managing it. It's usually not the aircraft's fault. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, and if you've seen that floating around, those numbers, then I thought I would jump on there and kind of clear, clear that up a little bit. Um, my thoughts on it, at least. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a, uh, a sad story here um, out of the VA. I thought I would cover this because... Uh, uh, because we... We're talking about the VA in Uzbekistan, the K-2 base. So, you know, it just occurred to me, too, that uh, I haven't been using my seven-minute clock on today's episode. So, you know what? I, I owe myself a little uh, 
hellfire to the face there. So I guess I owe myself a little hellfire to the face and, uh, and, and then we'll get back on track. So let me, uh, go ahead and pull up this next thumbnail here, put seven minutes on the clock. I think you guys will appreciate that. And, uh, yeah. Um, unfortunately a veteran committed suicide. Well, let me not get ahead of myself. Uh, after making two calls to the VA's crisis line. So here's a person who called the VA crisis line and uh, we'll go through this article and you tell me if you think that this was appropriately handled because obviously there's going to be some controversy with this as to, you know, these types of things as there always is. And, uh, and, and I don't know the right answer to every situation. I got to try to see it from both sides and report to you guys unbiased. So let's go through this article and see together what happened here. So according to Task and Purpose, which pulled this article from military.com, veteran died, at, uh, veteran died hours after two calls to the suicide hotline went unheeded and Inspector General's report finds. So in the first call to the VA crisis line, a veteran spoke of having a gun to his or her head after drinking heavily. If I, okay, let's stop right there. I would send help. If somebody told me that they were drunk and had a gun to their head, then I'm sending help. If that's just me, uh, or or if it's somebody I know, then I'm going. Okay, that's pretty. That's a pretty easy one right there. Like that first call should have been enough. It was 4:30 a.m. It was July 4th, 2018. The caller said that the fireworks they were hearing were bringing back survivors' guilt from combat experiences and was taking drugs to try to sleep as well as drinking shot after shot of whiskey. Here we've got a guy who is taking sleep aid drugs and drinking alcohol. That has psychosis-inducing effects. The person on the other end of the phone should know this. This can cause psychosis. This can cause this can lead to a fatal overdose very easily, uh, as well as a boatload of other problems that can result from the psychotic episodes you might have. So the person who was identified as responder one from the first phone call accepted the caller's statement that there were no bullets in the gun and classified the call as low to moderate risk. Ah, that's tough. Because the guy, the, the veteran says, well, there's actually no bullets in the gun. I just have the gun, but there's no bullets in it. But low to moderate risk after knowing that this person is drunk and on meds with a gun seems wrong to me. Drunk and on meds with a gun is high risk for a number of reasons. Come on. Responder 1 did not judge that that call merited an emergency dispatch of police to check on the veteran. I think that that is a mistake, in my opinion. That sounds like a mistake. I think that at that point, if you have the ability to dispatch help, why wouldn't you do it? Um, why wouldn't you do it? So then an hour later, this person calls back. The same person reports to responder two, having a gun in their mouth, but denies having suicidal ideation or the means to carry out this plan to shoot. You don't put a gun in your mouth when you're drunk and on pills if you're not having suicidal ideation, I mean, that's just let your actions speak louder than your words, I guess, as they always say. So again, police were not notified until 11 hours later. But why 11? Why were they notified 11 hours later? Who notified them? So then a rescue was initiated, but the caller was found dead. The medical examiner did not rule this a suicide but listed it as best classified as undetermined because it could just be the alcohol and the pills as an overdose, accidental overdose. Now, the responders documented the caller was intoxicated. They did not adequately assess the caller's use of alcohol or other drugs, failed to consider the caller's potential overdose risk, and failed to initiate an emergency dispatch the medical examiner found. Now, I don't think that that means that the person's death is the fault of the VA crisis line, but was this handled properly? I think absolutely not. So in a letter Thursday to VA Secretary Robert Wilkie, Senator John Tester from Montana, 
who is the ranking member of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, said, this report is particularly disturbing because the veteran spoke to two different VCL responders and reported suicidal ideation, a past suicide attempt. So he had a past suicide attempt, access to lethal means, the gun, and intoxication of alcohol and drugs. Despite these red flags, that's like every red flag in the book, the VCL responder requested, did not, did not, neither Veterans Crisis Line responder requested emergency dispatch to check on a veteran. If, if this was an accidental death, then this person's life could have been saved by intervention. So once it was known that this person was on pills and taking lots of shots of whiskey, that should make you want to get that person to the hospital. Now I'm just talking to the audience right now. If you or someone you know is taking antidepressant pills, sleep aids, whatever, and chugging down booze to wash it down, that person needs immediate help. That is a deadly combination. We should know this. We should know this as having served in the military. The way that they dole out sleeping pills and the way that people take down alcohol, we should know the risks, okay? I know the risks. I know the risks very well. There should be no surprise. If you're popping Percocets or even 800 milligram Tylenols, Mobix, and chugging it with, you know, 12 ounces of whiskey a night, that is not good. Your body's going to shut down. You're going to have organ failure. Acute. Like, you'll go into acute organ failure and you'll die there on the spot. So, it seems negligent. Like, there should have been more intervention, obviously. I say obviously because... Obviously. And uh, I'm curious what you guys think. Do you think that the VA is in some way at fault here? I don't know if that's what I think. The VA has... Crisis line has responded to over 3 million calls, including several hundred thousand, uh, I believe, maybe around 100,000 dispatches for help. They've helped a lot of people. They've helped a lot of people. I don't know. I don't think that it's their fault, but there was an opportunity there that was missed to save a life. And I guess I'll leave it at that. All right. So there's an old, old story here with a recent update. Um, that I thought was worth noting because it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and I wanted to get you guys thoughts on it. So let me pull up the thumbnail here. So I don't know if you guys recognize a uh, killer McMurderer over here, but he is the guy who shot off Pensacola air base, the Saudi Arabian national who was there for flight training, who shot up the Pensacola air base and killed three service members uh, a couple of years ago. So let me pull up this article here. Uh, let me put seven minutes on the clock. Let's go. So, I saw the headline. Toxic command climate was a factor in NAS Pensacola's shooting investigation finds. And, and at first, I was, like, pissed off. Like, toxic command climate was the reason that this guy from Saudi Arabia, who was radicalized, walked in and shot three sailors. Mm, I don't buy it. But reading down here into the article, I'm going to try to report to you guys non-biasedly. And I'll see what you guys think. So, and I'll tell you my own thoughts, which are biased. But a U.S. Navy investigation has determined that the Saudi pilot who killed three people when he opened fire on Florida's Naval's Air Station Pensacola last year was self-radicalized. However, it also found that Navy leaders could have picked up on the pattern of medical... Met, eh. It was also found that the Navy leaders could have picked up on the pattern of negative behaviors exacerbated by the toxic command climate at the base. So a full 260-page investigation was released Friday that you can look up. Second Lieutenant Mohammed Al-Shamrani, a 21-year-old Royal Saudi Air Force member, was motivated by anti-American and jihadist sentiment. The aviation training climate likely increased the chances of su- successfully carrying out the December 6, 2019 attack that killed three sailors and injured eight others. Before I move on to you know reading who was killed here, he was radicalized. He was anti-American. He was conducting a jihad. Like that did, that is what happened. So that's important to note. This is not some innocent victim here. This guy was a terrorist and he killed Americans. So I just want to be totally clear about that before we even move forward at all. The three victims were Ensign Joshua Watson, Naval Air Crewman Third Class Mohammed Haidam, and Cameron S. Walters, who was also uh, a young sailor. They weren't even, these guys weren't even involved. 
Like these Americans that were killed had nothing to do with the command that this guy was a part of or the grievances that he had. So here's where I was upset. And I was like, why are they blaming this on, on toxic leadership? You know, I had to get more information. So let's get down to the more information. So the self-radicalization of Second Lieutenant Ash Manrani was the primary cause of this fatal attack. Yes, obviously, the primary cause was that he was a terrorist and he killed Americans. According to the incident summary, uh, which was signed by the Chief of Naval Operations, who is Mike Gilday in July, his actions and behaviors along with the organizational environment inherent to the aviation pipeline likely increased his probability of committing an insider attack. Military leaders, government employees, contract employees, peers, and civilians knew of isolated events and indicators, but all remained unaware of the complete picture. See something, say something, right? That's why NCIS has these investigation units. It's a see something, say something environment. So if you see something, say something. So that way, maybe you think you only see one minor thing, but maybe somebody else saw another minor thing and it starts to come together, right? So the intelligence officials, law enforcement officials can get the big picture. So the Secretary of the Navy issued a fleet-wide stand down to, to address these insider threats and, and active shooter training. Um, which is important, but of course, when a shooting starts, uh, there's probably going to be some people who are caught in the initial violence of action there by the perpetrator and, uh, going to get hurt. So then I was like, okay, so where's the toxic leadership part? What could possibly have been the factor here? And we all know in the military, there's some inappropriate comments made. There's some inappropriate joking, but it's only as inappropriate as people receive it as, right? And then you have to say something, maybe reel some people back, and the military is getting better as to be a more sensitive climate to that type of stuff, but certainly we've probably all been around some inappropriate stuff. So I know I have, and I've I've called it out too, because I don't believe, especially when I was working as an instructor, when I was an instructor and we had students, I never believed we should have been acting inappropriately around the students because they need to have that initial baseline of professionalism, adherence to cultural, you know, normalcies that we're trying to build here and just learn their job. And the most important thing should be learning their job. So any distractions that are added in there by goofing around, horseplay, whatever, you know, trash talking is not going to help them learn their job. So prior to flight school in Pensacola, Al Shamrani began his pre-flight training in Joint Base San Antonio Lackland. Officials with the DLI, the Defense Language Institute, uh, placed him on academic probation for lack of growth. So he was probably, he was like rolled back. So he was on some academic problems, uh, which cannot be good for the psyche. But then in Pensacola, a key factor in the shooting was the unprofessional behavior and harassment. For, I'm getting like upset. A key factor was the unprofessional behavior and harassment from a contract instructor and a group of instructors who stood idly by at the base within Training Wing 6 or TW6, the host training wing at Florida at the Florida base in Pensacola. The individual's name and formal title were redacted, uh, but he worked for the Delaware Resource Group, which is the contracting company out of Oklahoma. Three students reported that the instructor made homophobic comments regarding their hairstyles and personal grooming. Let's just really quick remember for a second that these guys are Saudi Arabian nationals who in Saudi Arabia have very negative views on homosexuality. It is a very serious offense to be considered or, or be accused of being homosexual. Uh, so you got to kind of know your audience there, bud. Multiple complaints were filed against the contractor. So the initial thought that I had was, well, were there any formal grievances filed? There were multiple complaints were filed against the contractor Al Shamrani was among them after the instructor referred to him as porn stash. Another student also submitted, which you might think is funny. You know, we make those jokes with our shipmates or our battle buddies, but this is a Saudi Arabian national student who's coming from another country who doesn't know what it's like to be in America, doesn't know what Americans are like. And if, if somebody's already having, you know, attempts made at them to radicalize them and then you, 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 exile them from the group. You kind of push them out and make fun of them and insult them and insinuate that they might be gay. Uh, yeah, I can see how that would push them in that direction. hundred percent. 
For months, unprofessional behavior towards students persisted and went uncorrected. One student reported that the instructor referred to him as the asshole in front of other students and colleagues. Multiple students reported overhearing the instructor tell Saudi students that they stink, including one occasion where the instructor publicly humiliated a student and sent him home to shower. The instructor told the Saudi students, as long as you don't respect women in your country, I won't respect you either. Dude, you're not at, like, you're not at war with these guys. They're your students. If you can't handle your job, quit. What I'm curious about, what I'd like to know is did this instructor file any grievances with his company about any of this stuff? Or did he just take it upon himself to, you know, insult this student? These people are not Americans. They're from other countries. They're di- it's different. People have different cultures. It's okay to have a different culture. Now, I'm not saying this dude's some kind of victim. I said that before, and I want to reiterate it. The guy who shot those people in Pensacola is not a victim. He's a terrorist. Was he pushed towards terror to be radicalized because he hated his flight instructor? Maybe. Maybe. Could have this have been prevented? Maybe. I don't want to play, you know, Monday morning quarterback here too much. But yeah, maybe. It certainly seems like it's possible. Now, the complaint reached the complaints from the students reached leaders within the CNAT or the Chief of Naval Air Training. Uh, and people were tasked with resolving the incident with Ashamrani and concluded that the instructor should meet with him to apologize when Ashamrani was unsatisfied with the apology. The ground training officer in charge asked him what it would take to correct the misstep. And now here's where the red flags start popping up. It might have been too late at this point. Al Shamrani replied, I want his hit. And then pauses and says, I want something to happen to him. People said, they think he said, they think what he was going to say before he didn't finish his sentence was, I want his head. He was going to say, I want his head. Talk about a red flag. Now, Maybe at this point, unfortunately, you would take that student and just send him home, okay? Maybe you would take that student, roll him out of the class, maybe drop him to class for administrative reasons, whatever, and send him back to Saudi Arabia. He's obviously not adjusting well. The whole situation was mishandled, and now he's showing some red flags. So maybe send him home. But they didn't. Um, then there was some previous complaints that the Navy was aware of, not just against the instructor, but the command climate overall. Norwegian and German student pilots also submitted complaints dating back to 2013. So it sounds like the instructors at this group were belittling, berating anybody who was coming to their school. I assume they were doing the same thing. I assume maybe wrongly that they were doing the same thing to American students, right? They might've been doing the same thing to American students, but maybe it was like more accepted or people were less uh, apt to file a complaint because, you know, those were the instructors and the instructor's always right and that kind of attitude. But that was, you know, abusive of the the instructors. So uh, it definitely, you know, as it says here, the incidents ranged from targeted micromanagement, taking students away from their aviation training to do meaningless chores such as cleaning to derogatory comments made in front of other leaders and peers, a toxic microclimate due to unprofessionalism. Now, here's the jacked up thing. Uh, so, officials said that there was improper oversight of Al Shamrani given that he reported to five separate commands over an 18-month period during his training. Yet an instructor from TW6 was present while Shamrani applied to purchase a firearm in 2019. Another red flag, because he's not allowed to do that. It's illegal, he's not a citizen, and it's illegal by Saudi Arabian standards. And an instructor was there? Come on. Are you serious? Then he moved it to Pensacola, and then he used it to shoot Americans in the, in a, what was this, in 2019? He went AWOL, and uh, and then he came back to base and killed these Americans. And I remember that they were, like, suspending all foreign 
training at some point, but here, here's the aftermath of the attack. Following the attack, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia Ministry of Defense agreed to enhance its host nation screening and vetting protocols. Then Defense Secretary, no longer, Mark Esper and former Navy Secretary Thomas Modley, uh, which has changed a few times, issued an immediate guidance to further review installation security protocols and impose solutions such as heightened security. The Navy issued multiple analysis into laws, regulations, blah, blah, blah. But there's so many ways that this could have been caught, prevented, addressed beforehand before it got this bad and resulted in the death. And I'm going to leave it with this because it ultimately resulted in the deaths of Ensign Joshua Watson, Petty Officer Third Class Muhammad Hydem, and I think Airman Cameron Walters. So there were those were the victims. And that's what I want to remember is the victims. Uh, you know, and I guess I'll just say I'm way over to seven minutes and I guess I'll just say, see something, say something, see something, say something. Don't be afraid of what might happen. Just say what you honestly saw, what you don't make stuff up. But if you honestly saw something that concerned you say something, because who knows what part of a bigger puzzle your, whatever you witnessed fits into. Okay. So there's that one. Um, how are we doing on time? 1051 already? Ah, I have so many more stories. I have so many, but you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll leave today off on that story and I will get to the, I will start off tomorrow with the story we didn't get to. Um, I have a whole nother day's worth, because I honestly have a whole nother day's worth of stories here. Um, and for sticking around this long, I want to tell you guys that we have a brand new t-shirt, a brand new t-shirt just hit the store today. Okay. So I'm on the scuttlebutt show. So the website is scuttlebuttshow.com. And here's the brand new t-shirt, the men's and women's squid t-shirt. Okay. So this shirt is for our Navy veterans here. The squid t-shirt. If, if you were in the Navy, if you've been around some Navy veterans, uh, you know, we have earned and proudly represent the title squid. So I got this shirt up here. Uh, it's got the cool squid logo on the back. And I hope you guys are digging that. And on the front, it just says Scuttlebutt. Uh, let me know what you guys think about that. And if you're interested in getting one, they are on sale today. So you can be one of the first to get one. These shirts are the same material, the shirt that I'm wearing now. They're that nice, soft, fitted, tri-blend material. I love these shirts. These are the only shirts that I wear, this brand, this material. Uh, it's super high quality. And if you have been tuning into the live show, you might see that discount code that appears on the intro graphic. If you haven't, go ahead and rewind one of the live shows and get yourself a nice discount on some brand new Scuttlebutt merch. While you're there, maybe pick up one of these great coffee cups or uh, something else that suits your needs for around your house or your office. I, uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning into that. And if you have bought a shirt, uh, go ahead and take a photo of you in it and tag me on Instagram or whatever social media at the Scuttlebutt Show, and I'll hook you up with something. I, I, I tell you that. I guarantee you that. So... I look forward to talking to you guys really soon. I appreciate you tuning in today. It means a lot to me as always. Uh, thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you guys very, very soon. Well, tomorrow, I guess. And uh, same time tomorrow, all week long. And I am out for now. <laughs>